I want you to look in the Old Testament this morning to a little book called Nehemiah. Um, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Nehemiah, it's going to be an introduction to uh, my subject this morning. And you might think it a little strange, Pastor Nehemiah, for the subject, but just stay with my thoughts. I want to talk about a subject this morning that I believe is extremely necessary. It is important. It is a power in your life and mine. And in this late hour, uh, we need it. We need it to help us navigate the waters on which we tread today. A subject in these last days, I want to say it is a necessity. It is essential, but it is a scarce commodity, I think, in a lot of places. Let me give us a little background. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Israel has walked away from God, and judgment has come to the nation of Israel. Israel has been in captivity now at this Nehemiah 8 for 70 years it was called Babylonia, Babylon, and uh, it was what we most of it part call Iraq today. Israel has been there. Many things have happened to them. For one thing, their major language, the Hebrew, has changed. Many of a generation does no longer speak that, and that's why when you get to the New Testament, the language had changed so much. The scribes and the Pharisees had kept it. And even when you get to the Roman Empire, they use that to say, we will commune with the people. Finally, after the 70 years, there was a group, some were allowed to return, a remnant, if you will, back to the homeland. When they got back to the homeland of Israel, they found that their walls were broken down. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Their land was absolutely in shambles. A protege of Nehemiah, a priest, was Ezra. He was allowed to go back and build the temple. Nehemiah, who was a governor, would go and build the city wall, and there were still enemies of Israel back in the homeland. And if you know the scripture of the Old Testament, Nehemiah, that governor, took to rebuild the walls, took this group of Israeli people, and they built it while they also had to guard themselves from enemy attack. It's one thing to rebuild a wall. It's another thing to have an attack, but it's another thing to have to deal with that simultaneously. That's what was going on. This remnant for 70 years had experienced the tragic results of a nation that turns its back on God. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that America is extremely close of the very same thing. So I don't want us to miss the, the likeness here. Tragic results. Someone tallied these. They said this remnant from Nehemiah 8, someone totaled 42,360 people plus 7,337 servants and 245 singers, totaling 49,942 would 
become Israel's remnant nation or their second exodus, if you will. They are finally back home. They have finally have a temple in which to worship again. They finally have a city with a wall that is rebuilt for their protection. But one thing they return with that they didn't have when they left. It's on our sign today, unless it's been changed this morning. Sometimes you don't know this, but my staff puts on our sign some things I say in the pulpit. It can be intimidating. (laughs) But they had it on this last week. Here's what Israel came back home with, this concept. They knew it in a personal way that this, life without God never turns out right. Say what you want, try it for a while, 10 years, 20 years, 60 years, 80 years. When it's over, if it's without God, it will not turn out right. And this nation, Israel now, they were more than ready to obey God. You know, what's amazing is that when we disobey God in selfishness, the nature of fallen humanity, we don't want God, we don't need God, we want to live the way we want, act the way we want, speak the way we want, do anything we want because we're God of ourselves. But when it all comes to naught and the dispersion and the destruction comes, only then out of destruction do we seem willing to say, God, we actually really need you. And read through the history, 4,000 plus years and even to this day. So let's go to that scene. Nehemiah has these people back in Israel. Nehemiah chapter 8. Here, Ezra opens the book. Ezra the priest opens the book. I want to look at 8 and verse 5. And Ezra opened the book. He opened the book. In the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra, here is Ezra, blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, I think lifting up of hands is a good sign of surrender to the Lord. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These are some people who are recognizing that we need God. If you just put that scene in your spirit, go over to verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, notice the instruction, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They're recalling, ladies and gentlemen, the cost of disobedience. But watch what the leaders did in verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those whom... For whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
It's time to look up was the message that they had. And he spoke about the joy of the Lord would be the innermost strength that you will experience. Turn with me about 30 pages to the right if you want to. Isaiah chapter 12 to make an observation. This is a prophecy that Isaiah gives when Christ has returned and established the earthly kingdom. When this is all in the past, he reaches forward to see that Christ has triumphed. Verse 1 of chapter 12. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you, are, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, or Yahweh the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore what? Therefore what? Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There is something available at our salvation, ladies and gentlemen, that the Lord knows we will need. And it's important for us to have that. I'm going to go to the New Testament. You can turn if you like. John 16. I only want to touch one verse of Scripture. I'm looking at verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow... This was Christ speaking to the disciples. He will go to the cross. He will make the sacrifice. Listen to the instruction of the disciples. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Listen, that's enough hope right there. Here he said... uh, and the, oh, the verses, I'm, I'm going to, a little while you will not see me. I'm in verse 17. And again, a little while you will see me. Wow. And here he says, you're going to be full of sorrow, but, you, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Our heart is the seed of what we are. It's the very inmost being. And a man or a woman is actually what they really are in their heart. And let me say to us, though we don't like it today, what's on the inside always shows on the outside. You can't separate the two. For as a man is he in his heart, so he is in his actions. Just threw that in for some extra. And your joy, no one will take from you. I want you to know that that means this is a spiritual thing that is available in the salvation of the Lord. That is your strength. It is your power. It is your sustenance. It is your sustaining force. And ladies and gentlemen, it is the preserving of your spirit. In the last day, just before we end and get to the revelation, there's a little postage stamp, one chapter book called Jude. Verse 24 looks to that future just before we hear the revelation and listen to the promise. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Well, I can tell you have it this morning. 
How many of you know we need some joy in this world? We need some joy in this world. <laughs> I want to talk about Christian joy. I know this sounds so simple. Pastor, we've heard this, but I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, if you listen, if you look around and you listen very long, it can be difficult to keep your spirit up. It can. How many of you know that? That's why I think attending church helps us so much. Joy, how elusive, especially in shallow, a shallow living society. Joy, how indescribably blessed is the believer who has his or her soul fill with the joy of the Savior. Isaiah predicted, with joy shall you draw waters from the well of salvation. Jesus in his priestly prayer, I didn't read it. If you go to John 17, he says that they might, he's praying to the Lord about us, and he says that they might have joy. And if you read that verse, let me just tell you, be sure and note, the, this is a brand name joy as we say today, that they might have my joy and fulfilled it within themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a joy that is a supernatural joy that when we receive Christ, it is available to us and God says that's your strength and ladies and gentlemen, if that's our strength, I want it to the full measure. Amen. I think that God's people ought to be the most joyful people in the world. I think we ought to be the happiest people in the world. Come on, joyful Christians, say amen. Wow. This joy was not the passing emotion like we're accustomed to where we get happy about something for just a few minutes. Not just some fleeting emotion. This joy was not to be partial but in Christ, he said, let it be fulfilled in them. I want to declare to you that happiness depends on happenings. And it's elusive. It comes and it goes as quickly. I have literally seen people in church before who are filled with seeking the glory of the Lord. And they think they have it. And then an hour later, they're filled with gloom. But the joy that I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is not fickle with what's happening. It is sustained because it is eternal. The joy of Jesus is not an emotion of a high crest wave. The joy of Jesus that I'm talking about is as real at the graveside as it is the fireside. It does not evaporate under the heat of adversity. The joy that God gives us through Christ does not collapse in the presence of false accusation. This joy does not wither at the onslaught of calamity. The joy of Jesus of which I speak this morning doesn't panic at the presence of disloyalty. This joy of which I speak doesn't sour under the test of poverty. This joy I talk about does not die at the cruel hand of tragedy. It does not falter at the presence of misery. 
It is not created by possessions or positions. The joy that I speak about this morning is created by a person that lives in us, and that person is Jesus Christ himself. That's the reason, ladies and gentlemen, we don't preach religion, and we don't go through forms and rituals. We preach a personal relationship with God. He comes by His Spirit to live in me. He he walks with me, talks with me. He thinks through me. He teaches me, and everything about Him dwells inside of me. I'm not serving a God some millions of miles away that I fear. I'm serving a personal Father. However, let me point out quickly that it is not an automatic. We have to seek that. We will have it. We will know it. Thank God that when we come to salvation, we know the great liberty there is of being free from our sin. And that can look like a joy, and it can be. But the Holy Spirit doesn't automatically pour into your soul at salvation joy without any chance of its deterioration because the enemy will contest it. And if we allow it, Satan will rob us from our joy constantly. It matters, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to use a word, I guess this is grammatically correct. It matters a heap what you think about. It matters a great deal what you put into your heart, your mind, and your soul. We are taught in Scripture to guard that heart. And even in the psalmist says, above all things, because out of it, the heart and what you put in, that's what comes out. Back to a reference earlier. It's important the company you keep, young people. It's important the ideology you listen to. It's important what you accept as truth or not truth. The messages you hear should be refined through the absolute truth and eternity of this word. I don't care how reasonable it may sound. I don't care how persuasive people may be. I don't care how intelligent they may seem. I don't care what educational position they may have. If they do not speak according, whatever they're touting, according to this book, don't you take it in. Because Satan will ensnare you. And our world today is dying on the inside because truth is dead in the streets, even in our nation. Boy, I could stay there a while. The Holy Spirit will place it. The joy of Jesus, I want to say again, can stand all pressures It can withstand all the circumstances that Satan brings against us. However, ponder this thought well. It can be eclipsed by our disobedience. And it can become weak and non-existent in our failure to follow closely. I know you're quiet because you're thinking that's good. That's okay. I want you to know that we have as much of Jesus and the Spirit of God as we desire by the manner in which we live and seek Him. Let me just give you a secret for all of you young people that have these hard bodies and the muscles bulge and everything's just right. The older you get, the more vulnerable you will realize you really are. 
When I was 16 and 25, I was invincible. This just doesn't feel like it used to. <laughs> and I realize the scripture's true. I, I, I shouldn't even get here. But I've learned that in the last several years, I don't have near the balance I used to have. This church in 30 years, we, used, we built lots of churches. We built Indian churches and we built things all over this state. I used to be the guy that would get right on top of that building, ride the rake of that thing and nail all the rafters together and put, up, put them all together because I was, you know, 150 pounds and I could balance on anything and yeah, I could climb like a monkey. But now I get in the attic and I go, easy son. Easy, son. It's just not as sure as it used to be. I don't mean to depress you, but what I'm trying to say is just enjoy it while it's around. <laughs> I have no idea where I am on my notes. It must be maintained. So let's cover it quickly. Number one, it has to be maintained by genuine submission. If you want to run along without God, he will allow you. But the further you get away, the more you realize you'll be in danger. The scripture says, if you abide in me and my word abide in you, submission means staying put when it might seem smarter to quit. And Satan will always try to tell you, just quit. It's not there. Doubt storms will come. And the enemy will tell you it's not true. It's not true. It's just men. It's just their philosophy. Submission. It means having done all, as the scripture says, to stand when perhaps there is only a toehold. Submission means believing God. Hear me, young generation. Believing God, believing the pastor, believing mom and dad, believing the grandparents, believing God when it appears that from human reasoning it is far wiser to believe the message that everybody's touting in 2020. Submission means defying your feelings, which is a bizarre concept today. Defying your feelings and defying your fears, saying, God, your will be done, not mine. I would, I'm, I'm going to meddle here just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why discipline is so important in our lives. I knew you'd shout me down there. Discipline. I, God started the family with marriage. And it's designed to procreate and raise righteous generations. Marriage and family was God's idea. And if you cannot better it, I promise. As a matter of fact, that's why Satan's trying to totally destroy it, because it is the center of society. As goes the family, goes the church, goes the nation, the city, everything. That's why Satan is so eager to destroy the family so that those values are exchanged for a greater value. You know, we believe in a village today more than we believe in our families. 
And there's nothing wrong with the village if it's centered around this word. But we've decided through the humanistic manifesto that men and women, that man is his own God and he can do whatever he pleases any way he wants to. No restrictions, no restraint. I'm God to myself. Ladies and gentlemen, there's coming a day when we will stand before the eternal God and we will find out we're not anything close to being a God. Boy, read it in the Testament. We're going to stand on a sea of glass and the light of God's truth and absolute truth will shine and everything we've ever done, if we're not under the blood, will be seen to all humanity. But see, we don't want to be accountable anymore. I know I'm making a lot of good points on streaming. We we don't want to be accountable anymore. But God's going to hold us accountable that's why you need to, dad, mom and dad, that's why you need to come in agreement. You need to discipline your children. No eight-year-old boy or girl should be in charge of the family. You should say it and mean it. And, and, and young people, the, the only reason we do that is not because we're older and we just want to be mean. We do that because, listen, if the Lord tarries, you need to know how to handle life. And you may think you know everything about life at 12, but wait till you get to be 70. You haven't even started. And we try to help you. We try to give you that desire. We try to get that out there. We do our best to get you to reason. But something happens, frankly, when you get about 11, 12, 14, 15. We get feelings way out above the, the knowledge. We get feelings and we get situations that's far more important than we do absolute truths that never change. And we make major lifetime decisions that can destroy us. That's why, young person, mom and dad and pastor and anybody that loves you tries to teach you that stay in the perimeters because out Outside of it, you will be destroyed. I will just say this. You'll never know the joy of Jesus until you experience submission to Jesus. Secondly, let me hurry. Not only genuine submission, but genuine service. Most believers are activists. We get involved in all kinds of activities. They are important and they do have their place. Thank all of you who take responsibility. But let me say, not all activity, although religious, is genuine service. Not all activity, although religious, is, here's a word, it's non-essential. So let me summarize submission and service that brings genuine joy. Here it is. Please, young people, hear my heart. Mom and dad, in this late generation, please hear me. If you're going to have a joy, if you're going to have something of a heavenly quality and a heavenly part of your mind to keep you and be strong, I'm going to list some things. Here's what it takes to do whatever God commands, however difficult. To Endure whatever God appoints, however uncomfortable. To die daily, however costly the crucifixion of selfishness. 
Boy, it's quiet in here now, isn't it? To obtain whatever God promises, however seemingly unattainable. To love your enemy even when misunderstood. It means to pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. It didn't say for it, it said in it. Let me state clearly that possessions will not bring joy. Possessions and treasures can be comforting one moment and it can bring some temporarily, temporary happiness. But I've known something about possessions that bring joy and those treasures, that kind of thing. They can be great one moment and tormenting the next. A quick little uh, story about my bride and I. We, uh, we married about three years. I can't remember now, about three or four years. I was, some of you know I was raised in a, out on a farm, and my dad had a body shop 15 miles in town and a little farm, and I worked the farm and the body shop all the time. All I ever worked on was wrecked cars. Every kind of, to, back then we used to work the metal, not just take off parts and put it on. Used to do what they call lead paddling and grind it out and file it and do that. I got into the, especially the painting side of it. But I've fixed wrecked cars since I was six years old in my dad's body shop till I was 21. And I have, I have done all that all my life. Well, about three years after my wife and I married, I decided for the first time in my life, I want a new car. I was having a new car, and we went to the car dealership, and we made the deal, and on a Tuesday night, I had a brand new car, and we drove it home. I'm telling you, I couldn't, I, I couldn't hardly stay in the steering wheel to get it south 80 miles down to Paul's Valley because I was just riding almost high without a car. Oh my goodness, I got it. By the way, there's some folk yesterday got a new car, the Frios. Congratulations. If they may be on our internet. I was so happy. I was so proud. For the first time in my life, I had a brand new car. Nobody else had been in it. We drove it from Edmond to Paul's Valley, and on Tuesday night, we were glad. What a time. On the Wednesday, the next day, we had a church service, and my, it happened to be a business meeting, and you know how much fun they are. Anyway, we're there. Well, I stayed because I was a, a member. Linda hadn't been in our family that long and hadn't moved her membership, so she decided to get in our car and take a bunch of teenagers with three or four other cars following her, and they were all going to go to Sonic and get something to drink. I didn't know it. How many of you know what I'm about to say? Because some of the kids lagged behind, my wife pulled into a parking lot of a hotel that's on the highway there and was waiting for some of the other teenagers to come so they all go together. And while she was sitting there dead still, somebody backed into the right rear quarter panel of my brand new. 24 hours. Let's see, from six years old working on them to 22, however how much that is, 
I wanted a new car. It lasted 24 hours. Those of you that don't know what that feels like, can I just tell you that we didn't have a lot of modern things when I was a kid raised on that farm, and to have something that was new and untarnished was a big deal. And I was teased about it. They said that uh, Brooks, they, uh, pastor's going to tell well, I wouldn't pastor then. They said there's a handle on the front bumper. He thinks he's going to take that with him in the rapture. <laughs> and I wish I could tell you that I responded wonderfully because when I got the phone call and I drove and I saw my car and the lady that had backed into it was intoxicated, busted the rear quarter, caved it in on the wheel. I wish I could tell you that I walked up there with dignity and say something like, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? <laughs> I did not respond well. I was angry, I was hurt, I was upset. I didn't treat my wife very good. My baby son was in the one of those car seats in the middle. I didn't think God that he was safe. I didn't treat anybody with dignity. I was angry. My dad is much bigger than me. <laughs> and, and once we married, I couldn't understand this. He was far more on Nina's side than me. All she had to do was done. This is not right. It's actually a pretty good deal. But I misacted and my dad spun me around and kind of pushed me a few, about 10, I don't know, about five yards over into the flower bed. And he just simply said, this is how you're going to be. I didn't have any joy. Nothing close to joy. Possessions have their place and happiness is fleeting. But in a 24 hours time, it can totally change. Take my word for it. I still like cars. I wish I had one for every day of the week. But you know what? They mean near nothing what they used to. But if you want to buy me a 2020 Corvette, power to you. Thank the Lord. Just let God speak to you. That's all I want. Investments fail. Houses and lands are subject to change and maintenance and decay, and they are ever exposed to taxation. Positions. These have no genuine joy for they are everyday uncertain. Top executives can be eliminated just like that with a merger. A throne can topple in a night's time. A doctor can be replaced suddenly by a rookie with new technology. A dictator lives in constant fear of assassination. 
the athlete, although he's the idol of the crowd today, can lose one game or have one injury and he's taken off the roster. An actress can be shadowed quickly by another younger beauty. But joy, true joy, is a person. And it's Jesus Christ. And the closer you get to him, the more of that joy you have. Joy comes and is maintained by abiding in him, by believing in him regardless of what comes, by obeying him, by walking closely with him. Joy is overflowing when you know the freedom and peace and calm his sufficient amazing grace gives you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's powerful. I'm going to close quickly. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 is an amazing verse. It speaks of Christ and it says, Who, meaning Christ, for the joy that was set before him. And then the author describes, go read it yourself, Hebrews 12. 12. The author describes this joy set before him. And then he describes the cross and the shame of the cross. This was joy? Joy hanging naked and burning in the heat of the sun on a cruel cross at Calvary. Joy amidst the cry of a rebellious, maddening crowd that wanted you crucified. Joy with all the team having run off in the hour of the testing. Joy with no visible legacy, without a visible kingdom that you had promised to give to your followers. Joy to die framed between two law-breaking criminals. The joy that was set before him, what was it? But before we look at that just a minute, I want to look at the joy that was set behind him. Watch this. The reason he had that joy that he could endure what was before him was because of the joy that he had behind him. He had never one time deviated from doing the Father's will. I want to tell you something. One of the greatest joys you'll ever know in this life is knowing that you know that you know you have been obedient to God Almighty. The joy behind him, his ministry, had brought liberation to many. One of the greatest rewards I have is to witness to someone or help someone and see it take a positive effect for the kingdom. The joy behind him, he had spoken everything the Father had requested despite of the criticism. Joy for the present can come, ladies and gentlemen, from knowing you have walked with him faithfully. And then the joy before him. Here it is. Calvary was the will of the Father, and his joy was to obey. This cross would mean liberation from sin for millions This ignominious death would mean everlasting life for every whosoever will. 
This life lived in constant conflict with the devil would end in absolute truth. This humiliation before him would mean resurrection to a multitude that John describes through the Spirit in the, in the revelation of a number of men and women that no man can number. This death battle would mean that he would overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony that he was truly divine and the only Son of the living God. This shame would mean glory forever for the redeemed. This identification with sin would mean emancipation from sin for all who would come and drink of the water of life. Quickly, the word joy here is kara. It means cheerful in the Greek. But not like in Luke in the Gospel 144 when Mary announced to Elizabeth, her cousin, who was expecting John the Baptist, and here comes Mary, having now been carrying the Son of God, coming to Elizabeth. And as the Scripture says, as soon as Mary said his name Jesus, that John the Baptist leaped and, and Elizabeth, joy leaped inside of her. Here that word in the Greek is agaliasis. But here in Hebrews, the kara, a calm, an immovable delight. Kara is kin to karagma. And karagma means to scratch or to etch or to mark to permanently engrave. This kara, joy of Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, has been etched into the warp and the whoop, the very fabric of the soul of the submissive, obedient child of God. This supreme gift of Christ is to the believer given to us by the Holy Spirit. And by that Spirit of God, we receive His love, we receive His peace, all the fruit. Thank God of one of them is the joy of the Lord. And even in repentance of sin, in the Old Testament, David in Psalm 51 said these words, Of all the things, having disappointed God and bringing His relationship back to the Father as close as He could, He said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Generation 2020, I'll be through. Joy is a possession and a mark of the Christian. It's a mark of submissive, obedience, spirit-filled child of God, and we need it in 2020 that we can be sustained and the world can see something supernatural. That calm, resolute, immovable delight of fellowship with God, of knowing that I walk with the King. I thank God that even when Satan brings doubt to me and tries to come and attack my mind and my emotions and everything about my faculties, I'm glad that I know it doesn't change one thing about this word.